everyone, Josh here. This is the NOYC Godcast, a production of the Northern Ohio Youth Camp. Through various means, including a week of summer camp, youth conferences, sporting events, Christian content, and now a new podcast, the NOYC strives to give Christians a reason to continue on in Christ. We hope you enjoy a very special edition of the NOYC Godcast as we air a segment from our video devotion series, Life's Highway, which premiered back at the NOYC in 2017. For more information regarding the ministry, as well as additional Christian content, please visit our website at www.thenoyc.com. Have you ever watched those cop shows where the police chase the bad guy down the street, they hop a fence or two, knock down a trash can in the alley, and then, in a heroic mood, the cop finally corners the perp. The bad guy is trapped and has nowhere to go. Of course, the police tells the bad guy to put their hands in the air and get down on their knees. But before any of that, what does the cop always say? Surrender your weapon. The bad guy, out of moves, tosses his gun to the ground and the officer makes his move to cuff the bad guy. But do you know what happens almost every time? The police officer, with his gun drawn, will approach the perp Kick the firearm to the side, away from the bad guy. Have you ever thought about why it exactly is they do this? It's really pretty simple. The police know it's human nature to stall surrender. Even though the perp may be cornered and forced into surrendering to authorities, if he was given even one more chance, you know that bad guy would pick up his weapon and hit the ground running. Really, this is nothing new. In fact, there are several instances throughout history of a battle coming to an end with one side surrendering to the other. Only upon claiming surrender, the soldiers at the very last minute would throw down the white flag and pick up their weapon. In fact, this had become such a problem in times of war that a clause had to be added to the Geneva Convention in 1977 regarding such an act. The word used to define a feigned surrender is perfidy. Perfidy is defined as a form of deception in which one side promises to act in good faith, such as by raising a flag of surrender, with the intention of breaking that promise. Really, it's ironic the term even exists when you consider the meaning of surrender, which by definition means to give over completely, abandon, relinquish, and resign all rights and ability to defend oneself. By mere definition, you are not surrendering if you can unsurrender, or if there's even any possibility of perfidy. But the problem is, for most of us, when we surrender to Jesus, we really fool ourselves. We really believe that this time when we surrender, things will be different. However, a week or a month or even a year later, we find ourselves right back where we started, unsurrendered and falling into our old habits and our old ways and our old sins. The reality is, we as Christians are pretty bad for performing perfidy. We may cry in an altar, we may plead to God that we will change, We really try repentance, but just when we think this time it took, this time things will be different, the next thing you know, there we go again, picking up our weapons and taking back our feigned surrender. It's not really like we want to go back after we surrender. Most of us truly believe that this is what we want most, is to give it over to God. Yet time and time again, we find ourselves defeated and bound by the unsurrendered, unfulfilled life that we live. The truth is, 
We all find ourselves there from time and time, stuck in a rut, defeated by our own selves. But no matter what the devil, your friends, or your flesh have told you, you really don't have to stay this way. The fact is, if you are a Christian, every day you're in a battle for your life. But it's not like the devil comes at you with a sword and a cannon to attack you physically. That would actually be kind of helpful, because then we could so easily identify him and provide a counterattack. But instead, as a Christian, our battle is against powers and rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places, the Bible tells us. So we pray to God, and we plead that this is it. We give up. We surrender. And in our spirit, this is really what we want. Only as time goes on, Satan comes along and whispers to your flesh, you know you want to. Remember how good it feels? Just one more time. He forgave you last time. He'll forgive you again. He tells you it won't hurt. It won't matter. Just one more worry, one more look, one more night. And of course, we want to listen and believe what he has to say. Sin sounds good. It's enjoyable, or else we wouldn't be desirable. But sin is only pleasurable for a season. And so before you know it, there you go again. Perfidy. Giving up your surrender to find yourself falling back into your own ways. Do you know a great step in the right direction to deny temptation? Deny your flesh. Now, I know this is nothing new to most of us, but hear me out. If the reason we give in to temptation, the reason we fall back into old habits and pet sins is because Satan grabs hold under our flesh, then wouldn't the obvious answer to stay in surrender be to strengthen your flesh? Jesus himself said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that is absolutely true. In our spirit, we want to please God. We want to give this up for him. We want to be close to him and stay surrendered. But our flesh is weak. And every time Satan tries to tempt our flesh, it's puny and measly and weak and gives in. So what if, out of a desire to stay surrendered, out of a want to win in this battle, we become determined to strengthen our flesh so that it will no longer be weak against sin and temptation against Satan's lies and attacks? Sounds intriguing, right? But how? Is there like a Bible Beachbody program we can put our flesh through to buff up our puny flesh? Actually, there sort of is. By a raise of hands, how many of you have ever decided you were tired of the way you looked and felt, and so you decided you were going to start dieting and exercising? Now, how many of you have actually started that diet and exercise? Now, how many of you, after a period of diet and exercise, stuck with it until you saw obvious results? For any of you with your hands still raised, we all hate you. But the truth is, dieting and exercise are just plain no fun. It'd be a whole lot easier eat what we want and not work hard, sweat and stretch and work out, yet still have the perfect body we all want. And just as ridiculous as it would be to think we could eat little Debbie's and Cheetos while sitting on the couch 24-7 and still have that chiseled body as a result, I think a lot of us are convinced that this is how it works spiritually. Most Christians have bought into the lie that we're here for ourselves in life. Whatever makes us happy, whatever pleases us and makes our lives better is A-okay. So we pursue things like careers, money, relationships, and whatever else makes us happy, trying to become fulfilled. If biggie-sizing that fry makes us feel better when we have a bad day, if buying those $100 pair of shoes makes us happy, if one more episode in our binge-watching of Netflix fixes our bad day, then by all means, go for it. And in reality, these things aren't sinful per se. But the problem is, our weak and puny flesh gets used to getting what it wants. And so, if you aren't going to deny your actual physical flesh that extra-large ice cream cone with triple chocolate fudge and sprinkles when it wants it, 
Chances are, you're not going to deny your flesh that secret sin when it asks as well. Have you ever thought about why the Bible mentions fasting and restraining from food so much? It's not because when our bellies are growling, it's pleasing to God. Fasting is all about flesh control, forcing the flesh into submission. By telling your flesh it can't eat when it's hungry in order to grow closer to Jesus, you are in a sense saying, He is more important than my wants and desires, and that's what fasting is all about. So what if, out of a true desire to become surrendered and stay surrendered to God, we decided to enter FWAP, aka the Force the Flesh workout program. Instead of getting up every morning and doing push-ups and crunches and planks, we decided to start denying our flesh the things that it wants, even if it's not sinful, in order to show the puny flesh who's boss. So your alarm goes off, and your flesh really wants to just sleep it for 10 more minutes. But no, you know you really ought to read your Bible before you start your day. Enter FWAP. Show that puny flesh who's in charge. You get to school, and you really just want to hang out with your friends. And they start swearing, or they're talking about the kid at the next table. And while your flesh wants to join right in and poke fun, you can't, because your flesh is in the flop. It's time to whip it into shape. You come home, and maybe your flesh just wants to play video games for the evening. And you could, if your flesh wasn't part of the flop. So instead, you say no to the video games because, let's just face it, they'll still be there tomorrow. Now, it may not be fun to say no to the things you want, but just like dieting and just like exercise, the end result, when you really become devoted and stick with it, it's well worth it. So time goes on, and you've been participating in FWAP for a while, trying to force your flesh into submission. You've turned down the cheese pizza here, a little gossip there, and after some time, your flesh is starting to get the hint. There's a new sheriff in town. And before too long, wouldn't you know it, Satan comes strolling up to your flesh. He's ready to give it a shot. See if he can perfect your surrender. But where there was once this vulnerable, weak flesh that got swirlies from Satan, there's now this big, buff, behemoth of a flesh that won't be pushed around any longer. Satan tries to persuade and push that flesh around, but flesh is no longer used to getting its way. Instead, it's used to denying its desires. And so out of instinct, the flesh flees. It gets out of dodge because there's always a way of escape, the book of James tells us. We just have to have the strength to seek the escape. The hidden and undervalued truth of Christianity is you can be absolutely as close to Christ as you want to. I said you can be absolutely as close to Christ as you want to. Only you can determine just how close that is. No lie, no sin, no temptation, weakness, or failure can keep you from becoming close to God unless you allow it. And the best way to keep that from happening is to strengthen your flesh. For others of us, it's not necessarily that we don't stay surrendered, but for a lot of us, it's that we have convinced ourselves that we are destined forever to fighting. The concept of surrender on the battlefield is truly a unique one. If you can comprehend the toil and anguish that wartime takes on a soldier, I mean truly gruesome combat, the fear, the pain, the labor, the conditions, always fighting, always battling the other side. And while you don't want to admit defeat, you also know that you can't go on forever. You can't continue to fight the rest of your life because the other side has you outmatched. And so out of a desperate move, you give in, determined to stop the fighting and surrender. It's both a somber feeling and yet a feeling of solace as you know you don't have to fight anymore. No longer do you have to toil in the battle. Surrender is quite the complexity, especially to the Christian. 
But how ridiculous would it be if a soldier were to finally give in and finally surrender in order for the fighting to be over, only to be taken by the opposing side and expect that they will continue to fight? The thing about surrender is it's two-sided. When one side calls it quits, both sides respect the surrender, and the war is no longer waged. The battle is baffled, and the fighting is finished. When a soldier surrenders, they relinquish themselves to the remaining side, believing that they will honor the surrender and take them in without a fear of a barbaric behavior, because the soldier has admitted defeat. Do you remember in English class reading the somewhat dull book titled The Scarlet Letter? The Cliff Note version, that most of us read, tells us of a story of Puritans living in Massachusetts colony in the 17th century. Puritans were a religious group of people whose main objective was legalism, perfection, and well, pureness, hence the name Puritans. The Puritans, as the book explores, had their own set of rules and laws that would be implemented when someone sinned. The main focus of the book is based around a woman named Hester Pretty, who sinned and committed adultery. And so, as a consequence, this woman was bound to a life of wearing a scarlet A for the rest of her life, in public and in private, and permanently, all as a consequence of her sin. Hence the name of the book, The Scarlet Letter. Well, I'm not really recommend you go and read this book. The point is this. There are a lot of Christians wearing scarlet letters around their necks every day of their life. Like the book, it's possible you wear the letter A for adultery or D for divorce. It could be the scarlet letter P for pornography. Maybe it's the scarlet J for jealousy or H for hurt. Possibly the ever-loved scarlet L for lies. Whatever your letter, whatever your sin, day in and day out, you get out of bed look down and find that scarlet letter still linger there, still taking residence in your life out of the consequence for your sins. And you try to yank it off and to cover it up. You try to deny that it's there, but no matter what you do, you can still see it and you know it's there. And that scarlet letter holds you hostage every day of your life, defining who you've been, who you are, and who you'll become. But this isn't what the life of a Christian was ever intended to look like. Now, the answer to this problem is twofold. First, if you are still stuck in that sin, that scarlet letter that won't let go isn't going anywhere. Until you determine, like we talked earlier, for this sin to stay surrendered for good, it's always going to be hanging around. God is faithful and just to forgive us, but we have to turn away from that sin, march directly away from it, and ask for his forgiveness before he will forgive you. But for some of us, we've repented. We've laid down that sin a long time ago, yet still there it is, our scarlet letter. We know we have victory over the sin itself, but the stain of our sins from our past still spell out our lives today. We live defeated every day of our lives, and we can't enjoy the victory given to us because that scarlet letter is still stained. Do you know of a man in the Bible called by the name of Saul? Let me tell you a little about his rap sheet. Saul was prideful. He thought he was the best religious person there ever was. He threatened people, oh yeah, and Saul was a murderer. Not just a murderer, but he tortured his victims. He would literally hunt for people, drag them from their homes, and execute them in front of crowds. Or he would drag them to prison. This man would hold the coats of people so they could pick up rocks and stone other people. Saul was a bad dude, and if he had to wear a scarlet letter around his neck for every sin in his past, there would no doubt be an alphabet hanging there, even a Z. Saul would go on to find salvation, and in a very literal sense, Saul surrenders to Christ and becomes the Apostle Paul. Right after he becomes saved, he is traveling, and people see him, 
And even though he had surrendered and turned away from his murderous ways, people still saw those scarlet letters. Right in front of him, they would remark, isn't this the guy who destroyed Christians? How easily Paul, after conversion, could have woke up from the nightmares of the day he helped stone Stephen, or heard the screams of the families ripped apart by his hands. Paul was changed by Christ. He really was a new person, no matter what others saw. And how easily Paul could have looked in the mirror every morning to see the scarlet M for murder, or the scarlet T for torture, or terrorist that others saw. Even though those horrible sins had been forgiven by God, still others were slow to look past them. Christians, if God forgives a sin, who are we to still see it? We should never deny our sins or ignore them. If you underestimate your sinfulness, you depreciate the grace of God. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He freely admitted that he was the worst of sinners. And maybe that's why he appreciated the grace he got so much. But the reason a lot of us label others by their sins is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We may be sinners, but at least we haven't done that, or, or this, or the other thing. But Paul explains that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all means all. There is no graduation, no rising above this declaration. All have sinned. Even after his conversion, Paul could have let the sinful memories hold him hostage. Do you know what Paul became determined instead to see every morning instead of his scarlet letters? Well, it's handy enough that Paul told us exactly what he saw every morning. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Where others saw the scarlet sea for condemnation, every morning Paul could boldly live for Christ and proudly proclaim he was F for forgiven. Forgiveness, when it comes from Christ, is always final. We never find anywhere in the Bible of a time where God forgives a sin, only to bring it back up again and stick it to us. And the reason we don't find it is because he literally can't. The Bible tells us that when we repent and ask for forgiveness, do you know where Jesus tosses our sins to? The Bible says he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, an infinite, eternal, never-ending. Our sins literally are cast to infinity and beyond. And so if God, for some reason, ever wanted to bring up a sin that he once forgave, he literally can't because it's gone. His forgiveness is final. The reason that we can receive this final forgiveness, Paul tells us, is because there is now no condemnation. Where? In Christ. When we become saved, when we are forgiven, we enter into Christ. The Bible tells us this over and over. We no longer are on our own to stand before God. But now we are in Christ, and Christ himself stands before God on our behalf. And so although we have sinned, although we have greatly failed God so many times, when he turns to cast condemnation and a sentencing for our sins, instead of seeing us standing before his judge's bench, he turns to find Jesus standing there in our place. And because Jesus is perfect and sinless, and because we are in Christ, God rules Jesus is definitely not guilty. And because we are in Christ, we are found guiltless as well. When we stand before God, we are not condemned, and we will not be condemned, and we cannot be condemned. Jesus does not improve our standing before God. He does not provide a lesser condemnation. Jesus takes our standing before God and makes it his own. And we hear a final declaration that there is now no condemnation for the Christian. There is no condemnation left to be found. 
to ram a trail for just a minute, as great as it is to know that if you are saved in Christ, you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. The opposite is also true. If you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, there is condemnation. You have chosen to represent yourself before God and face the consequences of a sin-filled life with no assistance, no protection, and no defense. You are immediately marked as eternally guilty and will pay the consequences of being so if you are not in Christ. And if you are still walking after the flesh, there is condemnation for you. But for the rest of us, if we were truly honest, we are held hostage by a mistake or two in our past. And if it's a secret sin, it feels like solitary confinement. We can't get on with our lives because we can't get past the past. Instead of living in the here and now, we're living in the back then and back there. We define ourselves by what we've done wrong instead of defining ourselves by what Christ has done right. Or we define ourselves by the hurtful things done to us instead of the helpful things Christ has done for us. We are so quick to label others and ourselves with letters of shame that form our identity. The bondage of the scarlet letter is infringing on your life. But do you know what the book of Isaiah tells us? Though your sins be as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. It's time to take off your blood-washed letters and let Jesus forgive you. We're either in sin or in Christ. We're either guilty or forgiven. We're either sinners or saints. There's no in-between. Our sins were nailed to the cross of Jesus in a permanent state, and the hammer of God's mercy has no claw to retrieve the sins back. Surrender is all about finding true victory through admitting defeat. Many of us can't get victory over sins because we won't first admit the defeat that we have sinned. For others of us, we can't seem to stay surrendered. No matter how hard we try, we become battled and trenched all over again, doomed to stay in our sins no matter how hard we try. And for others, we have been forgiven. Jesus has forgotten our sins, but we can't seem to forgive them ourselves. The time is today. Listen, don't leave this place. Don't go back home tomorrow without victory, without lasting and fulfilling surrender. Today is the day, the day you found true and final surrender, the day you laid down your secrets, your sins, the day you found surrender that stays, the day you realized your forgiveness is final. Today, reach out in a lasting move, wave your white flag, admit defeat, and surrender to your Savior. Judson Wheeler Van Deventer had a lot more going for him than a pretty cool name. Growing up in Dundee, Michigan, Judson knew from a young age what he wanted in life. There was only one thing that he dreamt of doing, of becoming, and of doing for the rest of his life. Judson Wheeler wanted to become an outstanding famous artist for the ages. He would spend hours and days and weeks and years studying, drawing, and painting. Judson pursued every type of art imaginable. He would go on to become a pupil of a renowned German arts teacher. He began to even teach art himself, and eventually would become the director of an art division in a public school system in Pennsylvania. Beyond the art of drawing and painting, Judson became versed in music, singing, and composing. He quickly taught himself to play plenty of instruments in which he was quite good. By all intents and purposes, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer had life figured out and was quickly on the trail of becoming the famous artist he had set his life goal to become. Although Judson grew up in church, attended regularly, and was a faithful lay member, he would admit that the absolute furthest thing from his mind was, in his own words, active Christian services. 
Yet simply coming to church on Sundays, singing the songs, and praying the prayers wasn't enough for him. It was during a revival held at his home church that Judson recalled God urging him to give up teaching, give up his dreams of fame, and surrender his success in sights of what could be, and instead enter the field of ministry for the Lord. While it would be great to tell you that as soon as God called, Judson listened, even with the Lord speaking and urging him, Judson tells us the longing and still yet desire to be the famous artist he had dreamt of being. For five years, in Judson's own words, the battle raged on. Judson Wheeler Van Deventer said, At last the time came when I could hold out no longer, and I surrendered my all, my time, and my talents. Out of a reflection and remembrance of this time in his life of battling to surrender, Judson wrote these memorable words. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior wholly thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Again, we encourage you to head over to our website or the description of this video. We do have a link there with some memorable moments from the NOIC. Also encourage you to share today's podcast so that others can be encouraged and invigorated as well. And so thanks so much for joining us today. Until next time, continue on in Christ.